Welcome to Women in Charge, a podcast about women who are in charge of things and the things they are in charge of. This week is a little different because I'm not your regular host, Julia Turner. I'm Allison Benedict, Slate's executive editor, and I'm interviewing Julia Turner, the outgoing editor-in-chief of Slate and soon-to-be deputy managing editor for Culture at the LA Times. Today, we talk about how to balance journalistic and business priorities, what to do when you're unhappy with your employees' work, and why Julia doesn't want to be thought of as a woman in charge. Okay, Julia, tell me what you were in charge of uh, as of last week and what you're about to be in charge of. I, until Friday, was the editor-in-chief of Slate. And in a few weeks, I will begin at the Los Angeles Times as a deputy managing editor running their entertainment and entertainment industry coverage. So what does it mean to be the editor-in-chief of Slate? What sorts of people do you manage? What are the different jobs that they do? And what are you trying to get out of them? So... As the editor-in-chief of Slate, I managed a team of about 60-odd staffers and a web of freelance contributors to manage the editorial content that Slate publishes, whether that's the news and other journalism that we publish on our site or all of the podcasts that we launch or any other medium that we might want to move into or experiment in. The job also entails doing that while connecting with the other parts of the business to make sure that we are a successful business that can work with our business side and work with our product side to have a website that works and looks great and, you know, representing Slate in various public forums. So there's there's a, part, a core part focusing on the journalism and then a different part representing Slate's journalistic interests across the company and the world. <laughs> so what does that look like day to day? Are you actually in stories, editing stories? Are you assigning stories? Or are you out in the world sitting on panels? What's your day like? The day involves a lot of incoming. There's a lot of like your plan for the day in the morning. I'm going to get done this budget and I'm going to look through all these memos for this position we're trying to hire for. And I'm going to finish that contract negotiation and I'm going to help the sales team develop a pitch for some advertising relationship that we're working on. And then there's just like things that land in your lap that you have to deal with. A friend of mine who recently took on a more significant managerial role said to me, it's just situations and feelings and money. It's just so many situations with so many feelings about so much money. And I was like, that is a good summation. There's a lot of situations and a lot of feelings and a lot, and a lot of discussions of money. And so the kind of incoming that you weren't planning for in the day might be an email from someone complaining that there was a mistake in a story, which you then have to either investigate or get someone to investigate. So a lot of those responsibilities are more at the structural level than the story level. For a while now, I've been more focused on directing the strategy of the place and then hiring the people who make the day-to-day decisions about what we're covering. And then I tend to get called in as kind of like an opt-in extra pair of eyes on a big story or an ambitious project or a resource question, like should we pursue this this white whale or that white whale, which big thing should we chase? You know, and then I participate in a bunch of story meetings where I nudge the conversation in directions that I find interesting and that sometimes the rest of the staff finds interesting, (laughs) sometimes not. How do you think about the way you view Slate's 
editorial mission, how do you think about sort of filtering that out to all of the staffers when a lot of your day is not actually spent in the stories? So much is about hiring. I mean, so much is about hiring for a combination of skill and sensibility. You know, one of the things that's happened during my time at Slate, so I've been at Slate for 15 years. I've been the editor-in-chief for four and a bit and was the deputy editor for six years before that. So it's really a decade that I've been helping run the joint. And one of the things that's happened during that time is that Slate's gotten much, much bigger. Like, I manage 60-odd people now. Slate's editorial staff was probably less than, fewer than 25 when I started in 2003. I'm sort of making those numbers up, but something in that ballpark. And one of the things that's been interesting to observe during that time is that the way in which people understand the values of the place, what we value in our journalism, what we value as collegial behavior, what we're trying to win and achieve in the world, the mechanisms by which we transmit those values, I think, change when you get bigger. So I think there are some ways in which when we were a small and hardy band who all talked to each other all day long on one big giant email thread that was interminable <laughs> from 2000 and whatever until uh, the rise of Slack, people you know, were able to kind of directly have a sense of what they all thought about what we did and what was good for us to do and what we should do more of and what we should do less of. As Slate has grown, it's become, I think, a little bit more important to say that stuff out loud and explicitly and not assume that all of the journalists working at the place are going to absorb what our values are by watching a thousand incremental decisions get made about what stories we do and what stories we don't do and what stories we uh, praise and extol and what stories we ignore and pretend never happened. Like, it, it is useful to say that stuff out loud, whether it's at a retreat or just at an editorial meeting or on Slack. So that kind of explicit communication is something where I think the mechanisms have changed. Do you think your vision for what Slate should be doing has shifted based on the times or the people that you've hired? Or do you feel more like the people that you hire shift toward your vision? Oh, that's such a good question because they all happen in tandem. I mean, I think that what Slate is doing right now is a response to three main things. One, the people that we've hired over time. So some of that has to do with their particular interests and sensibilities. Some of it has to do with the generational shift. There's lots of journalists in our newsroom under 30 who were barely in high school when I started, you know, <laughs> like in elementary school when I started here. I, I haven't done the, the complete math. I'm not sure I want to. But there's sort of a general generational shift in who's making journalism now, and particularly web journalism. There's a competitive landscape shift in that what digital journalism is has changed radically every 18 months or so since I've been working at Slate. Like, there wasn't aggregation yet when I started. There wasn't really web video yet when I started. There wasn't podcasts yet. And so you're constantly kind of adapting to, like, all right, well, what does it mean to be Slate now when we all think Facebook is dead and search is more important? Like, well, how does Slate navigate that environment? Uh, a couple of years ago, with the rise of virtual reality, we had a bunch of conversations about, like, what should Slate be in virtual reality? And I think my basic conclusion was, like, nothing. <laughs> Slate shouldn't really be too much in virtual reality. Good let's, managing. Let's sit that one out. <laughs> but, you, you know, so you're constantly kind of responding to what are the opportunities that the 
competitive landscape for journalism presents. And that means that right now we're largely a podcast company alongside a company that's known for its written work. And that's been great. And then you're also kind of responding to the political moment or the news moment. And so the rise of Trump and his election victory and his administration have led the magazine in certain ways as well. So there's a certain kind of frisky contrarianism that the magazine is known for and that will, I hope, remain part of Slate's ethos forever. It's up to you, Allison. <laughs> you, can, you can decide. That we still exercise in various capacities and in various ways right now, but that like being lighthearted and wondering whether Trump is actually a great president just doesn't really feel worth doing to me, given the fact that he evidently is not and that the stakes are so grave. So the moment has affected what Slate is right now, too. Uh, what do you do when you read a piece on Slate that you just really don't like? I will say, I think this is a flaw in my management style because we publish so many things every day that if I see something that I think is blah or mundane, there is a significant incentive to just ignore it and know that everyone's got a lot to do. And I mean, I know this from when I was writing reporting. Not everyone is great. You go out and you try and you answer a question, you call a bunch of people and you write a bunch of sentences and hopefully you find something interesting and then you tell it to the world in an interesting way and sparks fly and there's fireworks and it's magical. But sometimes you're just like, well, this is what I found out today. It's kind of what you would have thought, but I spent all day on it. And here you go, internet. <laughs> like that just happens. So the kind of downside of something being a little bit blah, that's just a side effect of conducting journalism. So the flaw in my management style is that because we publish so much so autonomously, sometimes it can feel like, why would you give backward-looking feedback? Like, everybody's already on to the next, and if you basically have confidence that they're prosecuting their job in a good way and you think the odds are good that they'll do better next time, the point of being like, well, that piece today was kind of a dud seems like a pretty useless and sad-making piece of feedback that doesn't necessarily feel that helpful. So... The thing that I try to do is keep an eye out for either kind of errors of journalistic conduct that I find really damaging to Slate's reputation or the trust that our audience has in us and point those out and say, please don't do that again, or just recurring habits or ticks or kind of areas of focus that don't seem right to me and say, hey, I've noticed that you have done this a couple times. Maybe let's do less of that and more of this other thing. What are a couple of those? Not specific example of pieces, but like ticks that bug you. I'd rather not have in the magazine. Well, one example is we ran a piece once that referred to some security personnel who had rem removed some media people from a government office building as goons. And I just was like, you can't. It's just, it was just like a straight news report. Like this thing happened. We It wasn't an argument. It didn't do any original reporting about who the security forces were or in what manner they had removed someone from a building. So they were probably just security people who were had asked to do a job and did it. And calling them goons just seemed like a deviation from our journalistic responsibility to not editorialize things that don't need editorializing, like the noun that you used to describe security guards. When you said you think this is like a flaw in your management style, what would be the... The question of how to give feedback in an environment where people are making a ton of autonomous decisions every day and often, you know, with big projects or legally complicated projects, we're in the copy together and figuring out exactly how it should be. And I 
know exactly what we're publishing before we publish it. But, you know, much of what we publish, I only see once it's published. And so you kind of are making a decision about is it is this feedback useful? Like what would make this feedback useful? If you love the piece, that's the feedback that's fun to right. get, which is you just send the note or the slack that was like, that was amazing. I love this line. Or, or sometimes you give the feedback just by admiringly tweeting something and then the writer notices then your feedback has the shared benefit of both pleasing them, letting them know you like something, and then causing more people to hopefully read it and find it. So Slate is a journalistic endeavor with a journalistic mission, and journalism is notoriously not a money-making operation. How do you, as boss, balance the business goals with the journalistic goals? I don't really see them as at odds. They can be at odds, obviously. It's like a historical tension in journalism that you don't obviously want your advertisers writing your copy or corrupting your journalism and your journalism has to be editorially independent and the readers have to be able to trust that it is. But I see like the fight for sustainable independent journalism is one of the most important fights in the country right now. And it is largely a business fight. Like the battle will be waged in, in the balance sheets of journalistic institutions, which have to find a way to make themselves economically independent and sustainable so that they are not dependent on the largesse of people who might decide they're not interested at some point. And so things like being strategic about what we publish and how or working with the ad sales team to make sure that we're explaining what we do in a way that helps them do their jobs, I see all of that as in furtherance of the journalism. Like the way you get to do good journalism is by having journalistic leaders who think about how to make the business work right now. Because then you don't just get to get, do good journalism today. Ideally, you get to keep doing it. So not every person in a role like mine thinks that way, I think. Like, I don't know that anybody in 2018 in a, in a newsroom has the luxury of never thinking about the business model. Like, right. we all do. It's part of the job. But I find it not a sad annoyance. I find it to be like the creative challenge. Do you look at your role as protecting the staffers under you from those pressures? Or do you look at your role as like making sure they're aware of them and understanding how they relate to their work? Well, Slate's approach to this has always been fairly information forward. You know, we were started online by Michael Kinsley, who was interested in figuring out how publishing digitally would change journalism and we could use music and when would you publish? You know, all links, like all the things that the early internet journalists, many of them at Slate, figured out. But also he was excited about the idea that it would be much cheaper to publish online and that if you cut out all the shipping costs and the tree killing costs, like, oh, maybe you could make a magazine like The New Republic where he had worked successful because you wouldn't be losing all this money on basically wasted costs. Kinsley's hope turned out to be wrong. It turns out to be expensive to run a digital newsroom because instead of shipping and paper costs, you have to have a wonderful product and engineering team to make something that's like fun to read on and works and is up all the time and is hacker proof and, you know, all of the things that our great team does to keep Slate like available to our people at all times. So that particular idea did not play out. But yeah, I basically want people to know what the plan is. Like, what are we trying to do? How does the work you're doing connect back to how we're going to make the whole thing go? Make the journalism good, serve our readers, 
make the business go. Like, I think people operate better when they have fuller information. So that's certainly what I, that's how I would describe my philosophy on that question. In terms of the implementation, like, does everybody on the Slate editorial staff know exactly how what they're doing every day fits into our overall business model? I don't know that I've, like, fully explained it to everybody with equal information because there's a lot to do. But in principle, I'm for it. Tell me a little about your approach to hiring. Well, for me, for these jobs, hiring is all about how people express themselves on the page. That's probably a little bit less true for purely podcast hires, but I am a big believer in the cover letter over the resume. I basically never look at anybody's resume. I don't care where they went to college. I don't even really care that much what their previous jobs were. I want the cover letter. I want them to explain to me in vivid prose why they'd be great at the job we have open and I should hire them. I feel like that is a test that particularly for hiring at Slate, it's like make a cogent argument and make it vividly. And so few people do. Cover letters are really hard to write, I know, but nobody, it, it's it's very rare. And when you find one that pops off the page, I think it's a pretty good predictor that someone will be able to make stories that are alive and you know, that your eyes don't glaze over and that you want to read and you feel connected to, that they can kind of hold your attention present. If you can make something as anodyne and as shitty a format as the cover letter sing, then you're someone I want involved in Slate's editorial copy. I think one thing that we have focused on a lot at Slate over the last few years is diversity, equity, diversity, and inclusion. And so there are some assumptions about hiring, particularly at a place that is known for its sensibility that I think it's been useful to be wary of, like hiring someone because they're a quote-unquote culture fit and they seem like all the other people who already make the thing you're making is something to be avoided. I think for us, because what we value is surprising ideas and surprising arguments and surprising reporting, that has made it easy to change our practices in that way and, and kind of broaden our horizons and be more rigorous in our hiring processes and to make sure we're considering candidates from all kinds of backgrounds and valuing different types of experiences and thinking about what it would mean to contribute to what Slate is and does in the world, maybe differently than when it was like 20 guys that all went to Harvard or Yale. So you don't want to overvalue sensibility or culture fit or, oh, do we feel, does this feel easy and chummy because we have all the same reference points and we went to the same schools or we grew up in the same place. On the other hand, I think you do have to value those conversations and that sense of like, is this an interesting mind? Like, is this a brain that I want the Slate audience to be plugged into every day? And so trying to set up conversations and questions where you can get a sense of how people's brains work and how they make connections and how they tell stories is something we try to do. I always make people do an audio resume, like at the beginning of our interviews, I always ask them to just like tell me why they're a journalist and what animates them about the career they've chosen and what has like driven them from job to job. Because hearing people tell the story of what they do is so much more revealing to me than just like reading a list of the places where they've worked because it assesses their storytelling skills. Oh, I hate the word storytelling. Yuck. <laughs> I can't believe I said that. But whatever. It, it assesses their ability to interpret a set of facts, right? Here's a set of facts. Here's a career arc. But like, what does it mean? Why did I go from here to there? What was I looking for? What am I looking for now? Like, those are basically analytical skills, right? And that's what we're looking for here. Can you do yours? 
(laughs) (laughs) I've sat in so many of these interviews and heard you ask that question. Uh, It's so true. Yeah, I can do mine. So I graduated from college in the year 2000, and the internet was big and new, and everyone was had a startup. And if you weren't being an entrepreneur, like, you were such a lame brain. So as a child of the 90s, I am one of my co-editors of the Brown RISD Alt-Weekly, and I decided that we would start a business and launch a new teen magazine basically reviving Sassy, which was like a beloved teen magazine of the early 90s that me and my micro-generation grew up on and that had then like died a sad corporate fate. So we were going to reinvent the teen magazine for the early aughts. And we had like a whole proposal and we won some entrepreneurship grant in college and like we thought we were really going to do it. And my parents were like, hmm, interesting idea. Very excited about your business that you want to start as a 21-year-old, maybe you should do this publishing course that, like, teaches you the basics of the business, and then you'll learn more about how to start a business. And I was like, okay, sure. So I did this summer program after college that was essentially like a gigantic clearinghouse for both book and magazine publishing where they brought in a bunch of editors from New York to explain how the business worked and how you edited books, but also how you published them and how you marketed them and how circulation departments work. And I remember doing an exercise where we made those like little blow-in cards for magazines with like subscription pitches. Uh, And in the course of that six-week program, I met Lisa Chase, an editor who actually was recently featured on Slow burn. Oh, yeah. She was the New York Observer editor who commissioned the roundtable of feminists who debated what type of sex they might have with Bill Clinton. Um, and she was a wonderful editor, and we kind of hit it off. And when I moved to New York, she said, oh, I have this friend who's starting a women's magazine, a smart women's magazine, and she's trying to do for the women's magazine market what you and your fledgling company, quote-unquote, <laughs> proposed to do for teens. Maybe you should work for her. So I became an editorial assistant to this woman, Susan Casey, who uh, was an editor-at-large at Time, Inc., and I worked for her for a couple of years, dreaming up a women's magazine that would recognize the breadth of a, be more like a men's magazine, basically, and have, like, proper features and reporting and tech coverage and travel coverage and not just be all aging creams. And then the economy crashed, And it seemed unlikely that I was going to start a business or even that Time Inc. was going to launch this magazine. And so my boss was uh, pulled over to Sports Illustrated Women and invited me to come with her. And I did. And I learned a bunch about sports. And we made a fun magazine. A lot. I can tell that you've learned a lot about sports. I learned so much about (laughs) sports. I learned about... uh, (laughs) I learned so many sports terms. (laughs) I remember uh, learning about nutmegging and juking. Which I just didn't know what they were. Nutmegging, I don't know. <clears throat> Juking, I know. <laughs> Nutmegging is a soccer term that I think involves getting the ball past somebody in some fashion. Okay. Anyway, you know, there's no knowledge problem that you can't conquer with a lot of research. So that was fun. But then that magazine was shut down, and I learned about this job opening at Slate and also applied for a job at, I think, Popular science at the same time and I got both job offers and I remember the editor of Popular Science saying to me oh if you want to go work for those eggheads <laughs> and I was like I do want to go work for those eggheads because I could tell from the interviews that Slate was a place where the journalist respected the audience and 
At Time, Inc., there was always this sense that journalists were this elite tribe in New York who had lots of fascinating interests and would choose parts of those interests to share with some distant reader in some distant hinterland. And there was like a fundamental act of condescension in the relationship with the audience. And at Slate, it was clear that the journalists assumed that the audience was just as smart as they were, if not smarter, but just hadn't chosen to dedicate their life to like excavating information every day. And that relationship was incredibly enticing. And so I signed up and here I still am, or there I still was until Friday. Okay, let's talk a little bit about managing sideways because you're a woman in charge, <laughs> you're a boss, but you also, Slate is an organization that has a bunch of different bosses. Um, there's the head of product and the head of dev and the head of design. And so how do you think differently about managing those people um, in those roles versus how you approach managing the people who are under you? Oh, I think it's the same thing. You want everybody to know what the plan is and that you have a plan and that it seems like a good plan and then try to do a good enough job having a plan and explaining the plan <laughs> that then people leave you alone to do the plan and or work with you to help execute the plan because they think it's so great. And that's not, I, I should also say, it's not like I alone can fix it. Like ideally you're working with leaders across an organization, all of whom work together to develop a plan that makes sense so that each of the parts of the organization know how what their whole teams are doing should all fit together to make the whole thing go. You know, journalism is an interesting profession in this front because of the institutional understanding that you need to protect the independence of the work. So the management structure for an editorial lead at a company that's reporting up to a business lead is funny because there is this kind of buffer where the head of the company can't just tell you, like, do this or don't do that or fire that person or uh, don't publish that story or write this nice thing about my friend or hire my pal. Like, Well, they can. They can, <laughs> but it, it, there's, like, a very strong cultural taboo in journalism against that. So it's kind of an unorthodox relationship to the managers above you when you are the editor-in-chief of something and... I try not to take that for granted. <laughs> okay, before you were number one, you were number two for a while. Did you say four years, six years? Six. Six years. So how did your, how did the job change when you became number one, and how did your, like, sense of self as a boss change? That was a huge transition. I was number two to Slate's previous editor, David Plotz, a wonderful person and leader to whom I owe a great amount in my career and personally. Swell guy good boss. But his manner of conducting himself as the editor of Slate was to be extremely decisive, sometimes so speedily decisive to, it was a little bit to the point of mm, impetuous is strong, but just like, okay, like better a decision made than a decision not made. So let's do this. Let's do this. Let's do this. And I think my role as number two for him was to be a sounding board for those decisions and a set of antenna so that I would say, sounds like a great plan. The two other things we could do instead are this and like there's also option b and c i see why you're excited about option a option a is you know gonna have these good consequences these three or four people might be ruffled about it two or three of them can handle it but maybe this fourth one we should make sure we tell them ahead of announcing it or think about something that would make 
them excited about their work and more effective in their work that we could give them at the same time as we roll out this other plan you've come up with that will make them upset in some way. Feelings. <laughs> Feelings about situations. So there's the antenna piece, like, how's your idea going to land? How can we manage that to maximize the impact of the plan? And then just the kind of strategic piece of like, oh, have you thought about option D? Actually, might be even better because would have these better outcomes and not ruffle anybody's feathers. And in the number one role, you're not the brakes, you're the accelerator. You actually have to make decisions that fast and try to like move the whatever the question on your desk is along. And it is sort of better to make the immediate decision and hope it's the right one than to think about it for days and days. And that definitely took me a little while to get used to and to learn. I didn't listen to all of your Women in Charge interviews, but I listened to a bunch of them. And two, in particular, when you asked this question about sort of how do you deal with the just like never-ending pile of decisions that have to be made all day long, Eileen Brush, McKenna, and Jen Ag. And Jen Ag both said it's like this, they have just like this innate decisiveness, just have to be quick, just have to trust your gut, just have to like be okay with knowing that some of them are going to be bad decisions and just move on to the next one and don't dwell and don't regret. And that sounds like, it, it sounds like, you know, if you would read a book about how, like, successful people operate, and yet I can't imagine that all successful bosses operate in that way. Like, is there another way? I think so. I mean, I, I am not, I don't know if I'm constitutionally not decisive, but I'm a thoughtful person who likes to understand the whole system and how it fits together. And... Once you understand a system really well, you can make a lot of decisions quickly because you develop a lot of institutional understanding. Like your gut is actually informed by a very deep, like uh, innate understanding of yeah. the system that you've been in charge of for a while. So those things kind of line up. But I'm definitely someone who likes to have the lay of the land. And I think that that style comes with its benefits too. Like I think there are ways in which you have to keep things moving for sure, but there are also sometimes questions that actually require a little bit more sensitivity or thought or care, and I think you can get further long-term if you give them the sensitivity and thought and care that they require and don't treat everything as something to move off your desk the second you see it. Did you then, as editor-in-chief, kind of find a counterbalance? You were plots as counterbalance, but you didn't then turn into plots. What was the counterbalance that you found that you needed? Well, yeah, so I think there were a couple changes. One was learning how to make decisions faster and becoming swifter at that and understanding how to value that. The second was one piece of advice I got from another editor-in-chief when I took the job was cauterize, like the kind of open wound you have that, like, you know, is connected to and sensitive to all of the different particles in the air. Just, like, seal it off with a soldering iron. Like, <laughs> just turn off your antenna, cut them off. Like, just stop caring about the feelings, basically. Which I would also say is not, <laughs> like, something I have done to 100%. But you have to remove yourself from it a little bit more and just be like, well thumbs the brakes yeah. to some degree. And so, you know, with both of those things, I think it's kind of recognizing the dynamic, understanding how you can adopt the pieces of it that are useful to you, but also you can only manage as yourself. So if you're a person who likes to get the bird's eye view and a person who fundamentally thinks that workplaces work better when how people feel about the work they're doing is taken seriously by the institution, then you're not going to 
abandon those principles. When you started, did you feel like a culture fit? No. I didn't speak for like the first 18 months, I don't think. It was all, well, first of all, I was coming from a monthly, right? So the publishing pace of Slate in 2003 would probably strike us as very leisurely today, but it was much faster than what I had been doing. And I remember showing up the first day and having some editorial meeting at noon. I think I'll write this and this and that. And then they would just be like live on the site four hours later. Also, there were many fewer guardrails, like I think in my fourth or fifth week, they're like, you edit the explainer column now. And I was the ultimate arbiter of like, is this collection of facts and writing going on the site with no one looking <laughs> at it? I was like, okay. <laughs> so that that felt new. And I just tried to work really hard and not fuck up. It was a lot of men, although they were all very lovely and supportive. Like I didn't feel at least explicitly discouraged about my I felt younger than I felt female, if that makes sense. I just felt like these people were really fucking smart and they knew a lot and they had been doing this longer than I had and I just was going to like shut up and learn. I do remember though that Dahlia, who was Dahlia Lithwick, was there and we collaborated on a big project that first year. I was her research assistant on an investigation into the Patriot Act, which was set to sunset and they were going to maybe renew it. And so we went through it provision by provision and tried to report out like, okay, this specific provision what happened is it good is it bad is anybody using it like is it degrading our civil liberties or fighting terrorists or both or neither and it's just a big fun research project i think dahlia insisted that i have a co-byline on it which now that i've worked with dahlia for 15 years she, she loves <laughs> she to loves insist on a co-byline and i've benefited from that <laughs> i remember for a while afterwards we would both get invited to go speak at like conferences about <laughs> the Patriot Act. And I was like, you go. <laughs> I like, you're a Dolly Lithwick. I don't need to go. But I think she expressed to David Plotz, who was running the D.C. office then, like, eh, this this one was helpful. She seems good. Yeah. So there was a, like, female active mentorship that, you know, she put in a good word for me. Have you seen that as part of your role? Like, I know from knowing you that you're loath to v- view yourself as a woman in charge <laughs> as opposed to just in charge. But have you thought about, like, do you feel a responsibility to men or women in the field? <sighs> Not explicitly. I don't. I mean, I do feel conscious of the fact when I first took over the job, there were very few women running general interest news publications. There's actually a lot more four years after the fact. There's many more in 2018 than there were in 2014. And I did feel some kind of like representational gravity in the like mantle on and my pride. shoulders. Yeah, it seemed kind of badass. I felt some pride about it. But also... Like, the job is big and hard. Like, I spent a bunch of time just figuring out how to do it and what it would mean to me to do it well and to try to do it well and then to try to get better at doing it well. And so I felt more focused on that. And then internally, I just feel like you know, one of the things that's really satisfying is when you hire and you hire people who turn out to be great and turn out to, like, understand what we should be doing better than you ever could and have skills that you don't have and just contribute in all of these exciting ways. And I find it hugely satisfying when those people 
come aboard and turn out to be even better than you thought they would be and to try to come up with constant additional responsibilities and terrain for them to conquer that are fun for them and make them engaged and excited about what they're doing and make the whole operation better. But I don't think I've thought about doing that specifically for men or for women. It's just like, who are the people who have the talent and the energy and the get it dunnery? And then when you find those people, you cultivate them and give them more. So, yeah, maybe that's a disappointing women in charge answer, but that's my answer. Not disappointing to me. Uh, Okay, I have one more question. You've just left uh, a job where you have been very much in charge, and you're going on to a job where you will be very much in charge of a part of the L.A. Times, but you won't be editor-in-chief of the L.A. Times, maybe, thank God, (laughs) to you. I don't know how you feel about it, but you can't know until you're there. But are you having a conversation with yourself in your mind about being, you know, sort of look to to make every last call uh, and being ultimately responsible versus now a new role for you, which is being part of a larger organization with a lot of decision-making power, but not final decision-making power. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to know how it feels until I get there. I think there are two things that seem exciting about it, and, and then there's sort of a question mark. One thing that's exciting is like, Having some kind of boundary on what I'm responsible for seems sort of amazing and refreshing, right? Like anything I ever see on Slate, listen to from Slate, read or listen to from any potential competitor of Slate or business opportunity I spot for media is like a potential task for me. Like one reason that I read the real estate section first when the paper comes on Sunday is like it is the only part of the paper that cannot be Slate content. Like there's nothing I can read in there that I'll be like, fuck, we didn't get that. Just wait. Now that you're gone. (laughs) (laughs) The the real estate section is launching launching at Slate. Can't wait. (laughs) Well, I look forward to that. So the notion that there will be turf that's like, own this, know everything about this. Like, don't worry about that other thing. I haven't had someone say to me, don't worry about that other thing. I mean, I've had many people take on many important tasks, but like mostly I felt like I've had to worry about everything. So that seems like it'll be an interesting shift. And then I will be doing that within the context of a much bigger organization. Like the number of people who will be reporting up to me focused on that narrow area is the same number of people as report up to me here in the context of an institution that's 500 or so journalists instead of the 60-odd that we have here. And I'm curious to learn about those questions of scale. I mean, one of the interviews for this podcast that I did that was the most, they were all so interesting and had so many overlaps and divergences. I found the conversation super useful and fascinating. But Nadja West, the Surgeon General of the Army, who literally has 130,000 people reporting to her. Like, I don't know that that's an aspiration I have. I don't think there is a journalistic organization that has 130,000 people working for it. But understanding how some of the things I've learned here apply in an organization with a different kind of scale seems like an interesting thing to learn. And like I said, the whole point of this job is to learn stuff. So... I'm excited about that. As for the question of whether I'll miss being the person who's like, no, do it like that. Yeah, we'll find out. (laughs) I said that was the last question, but I have one more. What do you think, you know, what are you hoping is your lasting impact at Slate? I have led Slate during a moment of significant change in the fabric of American political life and change in the economic 
terrain for digital media. And I hope that I have left Slate better positioned to navigate the digital media business as it currently exists and with a bunch of thinking under its belt about what the right thing is for Slate to be at this moment. I think we've done a bunch of good thinking about that, but the part I feel most confident and excited about watching the results of is that the team that we've built here over the last, you know, 22 years, but the last four years is one that I deeply admire, respect, and love, and I am excited to see how you guys steer the ship. I'm so glad that you've been my boss. (laughs) Thanks for being a great woman in charge. (laughs) And that's our show. Our producer is Jessica Jupiter. We had additional editorial support from Cleo Levin and June Thomas. You can email us at womenincharge at slate.com with comments, feedback, or suggestions for women we should interview. And please don't forget to rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 